it's cam and welcome back to my podcast true crime cam since you all loved it so much i'm going to do another r slash let's not meet episode if there's any trigger warnings that need to be said before i'll say it right before the story uh let's get into it this first story is titled i escaped an intruder by playing along In 2014, I moved to England from Canada to gain work-slash-travel experience and also to find myself. I ended up living in Essex with three other roommates. They were all women, all a bit older than I was. I was 24 at the time, Megan was 31, Cherry was 34, and Cassie was 38. Megan was from New York, Cherry from New Jersey, and Cassie from Poland. All four of us shared this three-story flat. The back of our home was the living room and kitchen. The back wall was complete glass that looked out into the garden. The garden was completely fenced in. The house had an interesting dynamic to say the least. Tons of stories from that time in my life. I adored all my roommates, except for Cherry. After living with Cherry for seven months, I was over her antics. One day I came home from work, I locked the door, make myself something to eat and go up to bed. I brought some work home with me, so I am in my nightie with all these papers around me and my headphones on jamming out. I had headphones on because Cherry was out to dinner with work friends, that meant booze, and soon after that a tantrum was surely to come. I just didn't want to have to listen to her crazy scream crying. I am working away completely focused until I feel something. I look up to see a man standing over me. I don't register it right away and passively say, Cherry's room is on the second floor, and continue to work. In parentheses, Cherry regularly brought strange men home. He doesn't leave. Again, quote, Cherry's room is downstairs. He then interrupts. Quote, I am not here for Cherry. A cold chill iced my veins. My fight or flight kicked in just then. I start surveying the situation. I look him up and down. He has a bottle of Prosecco in one hand, and a knife in the other. He is about 5'10", wild muddy brown hair and black eyes. He has a light blue polo shirt on and one side of his collar is popped up, and a distinct Manchester accent. Once I focused in, I realized his eyes were black because his pupils were completely dilated. Shit, I was in trouble. I needed an escape plan. Unfortunately, this man was standing in between me and my bedroom door. I needed to go downstairs but I needed for him to think it was his idea. I decided to, quote, play along. Just then, he uses his knife to pop the cork. Presco started flowing onto my carpet. I said, quote, oh no, let's clean that up. I prefer to drink out of a proper flute anyways. He nodded, replying, quote, yeah, you're a proper classy bird, let's go. I try to act as natural as possible. I try not to show that I am shaking all over and try to gain control over my breathing. We take the long journey down to the main floor of my flat, all three floors. He has the back of my nightie bunched up in one hand, and I could feel the point of the knife graze my back with his other. I was trying to playfully speak with him as we walked down the stairs. I couldn't tell you what I was saying. I was most likely rambling. I couldn't hear anything over my heart beating in my ears. We get to the bottom of the stairs and there is a hallway to my left that leads to the front door. On my right, which is much closer to us, is the kitchen and living room. We make our way into the kitchen, 
I point to the cabinets that had the wine glasses. He said he knew where they were and starts towards them. I now had the kitchen table in between us. It was time to run. I burst into a sprint down the hallway towards the door. My hands fumbled over the locks, shaking and sweating. I swing open the door and see two men walking across the street. They must have been walking home from the train. There was a big train station in front of our home. I call out to them for help, and suddenly I am flung onto the ground. Little pebbles piercing my skin sent sharp pains where they jabbed. The intruder pushed me out of the way to run and escape. One of the men chased after the intruder while the other said for me to go inside while he surveyed my home and to call the police. I locked the doors and I called the police. While I am on the phone with dispatch, I manically run around the house to double-check all the windows and doors. Suddenly, I hear a loud bang on my door. I inform the dispatch of the banging and she informs me that police weren't there yet. I thought it might be one of the gentlemen who helped me. I go to look out the eye hole and it's him, the intruder. He came back. He's banging on my door screaming that I had his glasses and that he was not done with me. I absolutely freaked out. The dispatcher attempts to calm me down, but I am losing my ever-loving mind. She then said, They are pulling onto your street now. You should hear the sirens. I did. Thank God. The intruder then blasts off. One officer jumps out of the passenger side while the car is still moving and chases after him. The second officer comes into my home, interviews me and the two gentlemen, collects evidence, takes photos. After some time of him being there, Cherry comes home and freaks out. Once the situation was explained to her, she said, Oh my god, that could have been me. Yeah, thanks, Cherry. It's all about you. The next morning, I am called in to identify a man they had in custody. I pointed him out. I go into a little room and the officer pulls out an evidence bag. He asked me if the items were mine. They were. There was my underwear and photos taken from my home. The officer informed me that the intruder had been stalking me for some time now. He estimated three months. He had made a nest outside our home on top of a hill that overlooked into our living room and kitchen. He is also a known sex offender and drug dealer. He then told me how lucky I was to get out practically unharmed. Others weren't so lucky. To the man who stalked me and broke into my home, let's not meet again. However, I would love to run into those two gentlemen again. Every day I am thankful for them. That story was posted by user underscore loud and proud underscore. This next story was posted in a different sub, r slash ask reddit. The question was, redditors who've killed someone in self-defense, aka legally, what's your story? This is one of the comments. Before I wrote this, I texted my therapist to see if she thought it was a good idea, and she said to go for it. So here's what you asked for. I remember this vividly and deal with PTSD from it. Three days after my 14th birthday, a man broke into our house to steal some things. I was home with my eight-year-old sister. He didn't know we were in the house, so I grabbed a cordless phone, took my sister down to the basement, and hid her in the bathtub. It's a finished basement. I dialed 911 on the phone and told her to tell the operator what was happening. I unlocked the gun safe and took out my dad's short shotgun the kind with two pistol grips. I loaded it and went back to the bathroom. My sister laid down flat on the floor of the tub and talked with the operator. 
We lived in a remote area, so I didn't know how long it would take for the sheriff to arrive. I remembered a conversation with my dad where he said, In a life or death situation, any indication of aggression is enough. Protect yourself. Trigger warning for this story, it details graphic violence, um, and it's very grotesque. So, trigger warning for that. The bathroom is locked. When he got down to the basement, he eventually tried to get into the bathroom. I said, please leave us alone. I called 911. I'm scared and I have a gun. The man said, are there any pills in there? To which I replied, no. Then he said, I don't believe you, and kicked the door in. So I pulled the trigger, which laid me on my back because I, a scrawny 100-pound kid, had loaded a 12-gauge pistol-grip short-barrel shotgun with a 0-0 buckshot shell. It also blew out my eardrums. So imagine the next moments without being able to hear anything. If you're concerned about my sister's ears, the 911 operator had told her to cover them tightly when she overheard my exchange with the man. I got up, and the man was in two pieces. Everything smelled like metal, fireworks, and shit. Kind of like when you're deer hunting and accidentally gut shot them. The shotgun had cut him in half. His legs were against the wall opposite the door. There were big holes in the wall and pieces of the door stuck in it. I found out later that some of the quote-unquote wood in the wall was pieces of the man's spine. There was blood everywhere. His upper half was next to them, kind of on its side. I don't know if he was aware of it, but he was still moving. Not twitching, more like flopping his arms around. His heart was still beating. I know this because it was squirting out of him and arcing along the wall with irregular spurts. His eyes were wide open, and his mouth was mouthing the words, Mama, I'm sorry, over and over again. They stopped moving a moment later. It's been almost 25 years, many of those in therapy, and I still have nightmares. I don't go hunting anymore, I don't set off fireworks, and when someone says the phrase, I don't believe you, I'm instantly transported back to the moment where I killed a man. I hear the sound, feel the wave of heat, and smell the smells all over again. I also don't celebrate my birthday, which is a hard thing to explain to people. My sister stayed in the tub until the sheriffs arrived, kept her eyes and ears shut tight, and one of the deputies carried her away from it all. She just knows the smell. The man's family tried to press charges, so we had to go to court where I got to hear the 911 call over and over again and talk about what happened, why I made the decision I made, and made to look like a villain who, quote, just wanted to kill someone. This is because it was the 90s, shortly after Columbine, and doom was installed on the family computer. Ultimately, it was ruled self-defense and in defense of another. That story was shared by user Brain Katana. This next story is also in r slash ask reddit, and the question is, people who have had a stalker, how did you realize you were being stalked, and what ended up happening? This story is from rat-kebab. I had a stalker in high school, and he didn't make it a secret. We were friends at first, kind of talking romantically, but I was very shy when it came to relationships or being physical. We had never even kissed before when he asked if he could send a song he wrote about me. It made me very uncomfortable, and I asked him not to send it, but he did anyway. I expressed my discomfort and tried to continue the friendship, but it was just not working because he would still write me poems and send me weird songs. 
He started following me to my classes, even though his were on the other side of the school, but he wouldn't speak to me at all. It was insanely uncomfortable. This continued for weeks. He started sending me mean messages anonymously online and sending me songs with scary titles. He sent me that Smith song, The More You Ignore Me, The Closer I Get, every single day, sometimes multiple times. Then one day at lunch, he gave me a handwritten poem, and I can't remember what all it said, but the end was something about how he wanted to watch me get eaten alive by sharks. While friends, I had told him sharks were my biggest fear. I showed my teacher the poem and she freaked out and took it to the guidance counselor. She knew all the previous incidents, so the letter made her worried, especially how his handwriting changed when he was writing about me dying. I ended up getting called into a meeting with the principal, a guidance counselor, and the teacher I told. They even called my mom in and we all sat down and talked about what would be the best thing to do. The principal was really nervous he would do something crazy, so he said I should just avoid him as much as possible and be polite any time we may interact. Basically how I was already handling it. I'm not sure if they ever spoke to him about it, but the last interaction I had with him still creeps me out to think about. I was up very late and received a text from him. Why are you up so late? You should get ready for bed. He had been to my place once before and I lived very close to the school. I'll always wonder if he was outside my house that night. This next story is a comment in the same thread. Mine was much different than most people's. I met mine at church, but found out later that he had followed me there. Apparently, he lived a couple houses down from my ex-boyfriend, and this dude showed up at my church within a week of my breakup with my ex. He was always wearing an army jacket, so I thought he was a veteran struggling with severe PTSD by the way he would act. Found out later that he actually had a developmental disorder, and the army jacket had been his father's. He followed me around my church for a while, and I honestly didn't think much of it. He seemed harmless. My friends would always joke about it when they'd see him looking for me if he lost where I was. If I went to the bathroom, he'd be standing outside the door when I came out. This went on for a couple years. We were always really nice to him, and would invite him to our cookouts and hangouts. One night, I was at my friend's house having a girl's night. Her husband and our friend went out so we could be alone. This dude showed up at the front door of my friend's house at midnight, holding a weed whacker. Seriously, can't make this up. When I asked him what he was doing there, he said, Can I weed eat the backyard? I was super confused because again, it was the middle of the night, and my friend lived on a big lot, so it was pitch black outside. We told him no and asked him to leave, so he did. A couple weeks later, my friend and I were sitting with him in our church auditorium. It was just the three of us in there while we were waiting for my friend's husband to get out of a meeting. My friend said she needed to use the bathroom, and so she left me alone with him. I didn't really think anything of it. He'd never tried anything before, other than be a little too much in my space. So I thought it would be fine for a couple minutes. First thing he does is tell me that I look tense. I was like, oh, I'm fine. Trying to hide the fact that I was uncomfortable with him saying that. He proceeded to get up stand behind me, and place his hands on my shoulders to quote-unquote massage them. I was still trying to be nice at this point by saying, no, I'm okay, thanks, please stop. This was when he really started to apply pressure, and I started to panic. So I struggled to get out of his grip, but the more I struggled, the harder he grabbed onto my shoulders, and it hurt so bad. 
My friend came back at just the right time and yelled at him before ripping him off of me. She started screaming at him and he left angry. We didn't see or hear of him again after that. Not until my friend called me a couple years later, telling me the guy had been arrested. Trigger warning for animal cruelty. Skip ahead 45 seconds if you do not want to hear that. I asked for the story and my friend sent me a link to an article. It said that the dude had been arrested for stabbing his neighbor's dogs to death. I think one only actually died, but the second one almost died. He was suspected of multiple other dog deaths in his neighborhood. He had gotten arrested, bonded out, got put on an ankle monitor, didn't charge it, went off the grid for six hours, and when they found him, they said they found mutilated cats, raccoons, and possums in the surrounding block around his house. The article also said he had allegedly set fire to a previous girl's house when she rejected him. And another girl, he threatened to kill her whole family. I feel like my situation with him wasn't near as bad as those other girls. But I'm still so glad that he's in prison now. They won't let him out early because they said he's a danger to society. That story was posted by Nightborn Raven. This next story was posted in r slash let's not meet. It's titled, I don't go to the coin laundromat anymore. A few months ago, I, 22, was at the local coin laundromat. I went late because I had been studying around 10 p.m. The laundromat is pretty small, closer to the edge of the beach town I live in. The town is pretty well known for drifters and people experiencing homelessness. Most people are friendly, and there is a lot of drug use, but I've never really felt scared. Everything was fine until I went to move my laundry to a dryer. I was listening to music on my headphones, but not super loudly. Suddenly, I just got the feeling that someone was watching me. I can't really explain it. I just felt the presence. I turned around, and there was a man standing, just a few feet away from me. He was a white guy, with pink hair, wearing a full face mask, like a ski mask, a hoodie, gloves, and sunglasses, even though it was dark out. The gloves and sunglasses especially immediately made me feel uncomfortable. I thought maybe he was a drifter or high, but I didn't want to be rude. I tried to laugh it off and told him he surprised me. He immediately started talking. A lot of it was disjointed and just didn't make sense. He was talking about coming up from Brazil to bring his brother money to get a classic car. None of it made much sense, but he would ask me questions and wait for me to respond, so I tried to just play along. I still thought he was probably just high or something, but he was standing between me and the only door, and I started getting this gut feeling that he was blocking the door on purpose, not just accidentally as he talked to me. He was getting closer to me as he talked, and the feeling got stronger. Logically, something was off. But mostly, I just had this feeling in the pit of my stomach that I needed to leave and keep him talking until I could. I started to edge to the side, but he stayed in front of me, and the feeling got more intense. I started to grip my keys in attack position, just in case. He talked more and then backed off a little. He took off his backpack, which was a child's unicorn backpack, and set it on a nearby dryer. I looked over at the door for just a second, and when I looked back, he was pulling something I couldn't see out and holding it to the side, behind him where I couldn't see it. But I did see what was in the backpack. Duct tape. Instantly, it was just like an alarm went off. There was no more worrying about being rude, no more second-guessing myself that he was just off but harmless. 
It was like this cold, numb dread just washed down over me. I almost felt calm, like I knew the next steps, knew I had to do something. Time seemed to move in slow motion, and he turned back to me, not saying anything anymore, and took a step forward. I gripped my keys as tightly as possible and tried to mentally prepare to fight. I remember being afraid that I would move too slow or be too weak, like in a nightmare. But all of a sudden, the door to the laundromat opened, and a woman walked in, barely even looking at us, as she went to get her laundry. It was like a scene in a movie, a moment of intensity just interrupted by something innocuous, and suddenly it's over. He just turned, got his bag, and left. I was so scared I just stayed there a minute, until I could get my laundry and just go home. I didn't report it. I never knew what to say, since nothing had actually happened. But when I think about it, I think the scariest thing is that he left as soon as someone walked in. If he was just crazy, it wouldn't have mattered. I think a stranger's laundry timer saved me from something terrible. I don't go to the laundromat anymore. I joined a laundry service. The extra cost is worth it to never go back. So to the man with the pink hair and the unicorn backpack, let's not meet again. That was posted by Cannibal-Birdies. This next story is titled Encounter with a Serial Killer, and it's part one of two. It reads, First off, this is my first post. I apologize for any faux pas, spelling, slash grammatical errors. Second, understand that at the time this occurred, I was not living the healthiest of lifestyles. I quit using heroin when I was 25 and moved to France for five years. I just recently moved back to the States this past summer. This is relevant because it speaks to my mindset at the time all of this occurred and why I was comfortable taking the absurd risks I took. I was a drug fiend. Anyway, on to the story. When I was 20, I had moved from Baltimore to the Eastern Shore, thinking the distance would help mitigate my habit. It didn't. Instead, I just ended up driving to Baltimore every couple of days and buying several hundred dollars worth of heroin instead of just buying less on a daily basis. In the process, I got to know a lot of odd people, some of them hacks. In Baltimore, a hack is someone who operates as a cabbie illegally. Often they take people into the city to pick up their drugs or just charge half the rate of a legit cab driver. I had met an older guy at a Dunkin' Donuts in Dundalk who did this. Now, I wasn't in the habit of using hacks, but one night my ride went down a one-way street the wrong way in front of a police officer, and we were pulled over and searched. It ends up the idiot had brought his stash of pot with him, so we were arrested and sent to BCDC. God, I was so pissed. Around midnight that night, they released me. So there I was, in the middle of Baltimore City with no ride, nowhere to go, dope sick in the middle of December. They released the men and women separately, and my friend's cell phone was still off at the time when I tried to call it. It ends up he had been released several hours earlier, but had left his phone in the truck. For anyone that hasn't had the pleasure of being arrested, they impound your vehicle. As I mentally ran through my list of options, I remembered the hack I'd met earlier that week, and decided to give him a try. I figured that at least, if he was still awake, I could pay him to help me cop and dropped me off at the Greyhound bus station to wait out the night. Well, I called, and not only was he up and about, but he was also about only a 10-minute drive away from where I was being released. 
The fact that he was still up and about at one in the morning may have given normal people pause. I just assumed he was probably a crackhead, tweaker, or some such, and wrote it off as luck. Within half an hour, he showed up, and I climbed into the long gray sedan just grateful to be out of the cold and back on solid ground. Now, to give you an idea of the way this guy came off, the best way I can think to describe him is, everything about him was just gray. His vehicle was a medium, dinged-up gray. His hair was longish and a deep, solid gray. Even his pallor seemed gray. I remember he had the face of a post-menopausal woman, sort of jowly, if you know what I mean, soft. In retrospect, the guy was creepy as all get out, but at that time he just seemed unexceptional. And really, in the drug world, there are so many weird people that you're forced to deal with on a daily basis that unless someone comes off as blatantly volatile, you eventually learn to just ignore the crazy. If you don't, you'll drown in it. We managed to cop. In Baltimore, there's always someone out. I asked the guy to take me to the Greyhound station, just wanting to get well and to curl up till I could think about catching a bus. And he just sort of looked at me, looked down, looked back up, and then asked if I wanted to just go watch TV at his place till the buses began running. Looking back, I remember feeling a bit hesitant, but the man seemed so unexceptional, such a non-entity, that I couldn't imagine him being a threat. And if I'm entirely honest, I just wanted a clean, warm place to get it on. I was well beyond dope sick at this point, and my all-consuming thought was to just get straight. Taking my silence for hesitation, I remember him telling me not to worry, that he wasn't going to try anything. I ought to have maybe mentioned that I'm a five foot six, hundred pound female, twenty years old at the time, and that the bus station wasn't the safest place for a tiny female like myself to be hanging out at two o'clock in the morning, that he was just trying to help. Well, F me, but I thanked him, said sure, and we proceeded to drive out towards the country. To this day, I'm still not sure what direction we'd even gone in, just that wherever it is he lived, it was about half an hour outside of the city and that it was not in the woods, but in a heavily wooded area. As we neared his house, he started acting a bit strange. Not enough to set off the alarm bells yet, but still. I'll never forget him saying that either the police chief of that county or the chief's son lived in the same cul-de-sac that he did, that they were friends, and that the guy had helped him out of what he described as a few predicaments. The house was right on the lake with a dock in the backyard. I have no idea what county this was in, and no one I tried describing it to has ever been able to pinpoint it either. It was totally alien to me. We pulled into his driveway, and I was shocked to see that his house was closer to being a McMansion than the hovel I'd assumed I was in for. He would go on to tell me as we parked and we walked up to the door that it had belonged to his mother, who had recently passed away. Here's this ratty little man with a ratty little car, in his ratty little clothes, and he's living in this extremely, well, not nice, but expensive house, driving around all day and night for pocket change, and basically living at Dunkin' Donuts. I was more than a bit skeptical. When we went inside, the situation became even stranger, but at least more familiar, more in line with what I'd seen of this guy so far. The house was covered in two things, dust and knickknacks. And when I say covered, I mean covered. Every square inch of the surface space was covered in tacky little porcelain angels and dollar store crap. 
shelves, tables, the top of the ginormous old box television, even the kitchen was covered in them. The kitchen itself I only saw for a brief moment, but I'll never forget how even the sink was filled with the things. I asked where the bathroom was and excused myself to go get high. I was getting pretty weirded out by this point and just wanted to get straight so I could decide what to do. I did my thing and went back to the living room, which was the first room you walked in when you came into the door. I didn't want to go any deeper into the house. I wanted to take a look at the lock on the door, create an exit strategy, and hope I didn't really need one. That hope was quickly dashed. The first thing the guy did was bring me a glass of water and a handful of pills. Puzzled, I asked him what the pills were for. He said, to sleep. Now, it's 3am at this point, and I have to be at the bus station by 6. At most, we have maybe two hours before we will have to leave. I tell him I don't think that's a great idea, since falling asleep isn't on the agenda. That we don't have time even for a quick nap. Well, he starts to become pretty insistent that I take the pills. Believe me, if we weren't so out in the middle of nowhere, not to mention it being December and bitter, bitter cold, at this point, I'd have booked. Instead, I sort of laughed and took two of the pills out of his hand, stuck them in my mouth, and took a sip of the water, saying, well, what the hell. Immediately, he brightened and shuffled off to get me another glass of water, which I'd requested. Looking back, I shouldn't have even drank the bloody water. Idiot. I spit out the pills and shoved them in the seat of the sofa. The whole time we'd been talking about little things. Baltimore, local politics, music, nothing deep. At this point, he starts asking me about chemicals, about drugs. Specifically, what sort of drugs will knock someone out, but not harm them. How much you would need of what, for someone, say, tiny like myself. I try to act as if this is entirely normal conversation. At this point, it seemed to me that my existence depended on my not registering how abnormal the entire situation was. I think my thought process at the time, and especially as time went on, you'll see what I mean shortly, was that I couldn't act as if I knew what was going on. That I couldn't act as if there was anything strange or alarming occurring. That he would be stupid to let me leave and let me live if he knew that I knew exactly what was going on here. That I need to seem like a non-threat. The whole time we were having this discussion, by the way, the guy kept trying to get behind me. At one point, he succeeded and started rubbing my shoulders. I just laughed, said I wasn't a fan of massages, and that I needed to run to the bathroom. When I came back, I made sure to sit on the sofa that was up against the wall, and I'm looking around for a phone, but I don't want to ask for one, because I don't want him to know that my cell phone is dead. Yeah, another great stroke of luck. My cell phone had died about five minutes after I'd called the creep to come pick me up. Now, this whole time the guy has been pacing around the living room, sitting for a few minutes only to get back up again, walk back and forth a bit, sit back down. He'd begun talking about his mother, how she collected these knickknacks, how she died, heart attack, stroke, and how he'd been thinking about renovating the house, but hadn't had the heart to make any changes to anything yet. So he says he wants to show me something. He wants to show me the upstairs. Why I didn't run screaming out of that place, I don't know. I think part of me was still very much hoping that I was misreading the situation. That the guy was just lonely and creepy and socially maladaptive. Not actually dangerous or anything. 
But here we have yet one more horror film trope coming into play. Creepy obsession with mother and bizarre dust-filled house. Perfectly preserved in memory of mom, down to the last glass she used, still sitting on the kitchen table. I shit you not. And now the guy wants to show me the upstairs. He wants to show me her room. So I follow him up the stairs. At first, he makes it obvious he wants me to go up before him. But I won't have any of that. We got to the second story. There were three. I never made it to the third, however. And turn off down this hallway. And he opens the door on the left. Goes in. I'm half expecting to see the body of his dead mom lying on the bed or something and find myself seriously relieved when I find myself standing in just one more dust-coated room full of crap. I don't remember much about the room. I remember the bed was made, and that I couldn't tell if the comforter was dark, or just covered in so much dust that it appeared that way. He gestured for me to sit down. I obliged. What followed was the worst of the experience. He sat down on the end of the bed next to me, and began talking about his mother. After a bit, he looked at me and said, You're so beautiful. You look like a little girl. I bet little girls really like you. I try to lead the conversation back to his mom. He gets up and walks over to the far wall of the bedroom, starts referring to our earlier conversation about drugs and knocking someone out. He asked me what I would use to knock out a child what I would use to keep a child knocked out for long periods of time, safely. I'm trying, at this point, to act as if I'm still on point, as if I'm not finding this line of conversation to be dreadful, creepy, and horrible. I tell him I really don't know. I'm just a dope fiend, not a chemist. He asks about heroin, and if that would be safe. At this point, I've just had it, and I think he can tell. He says, I want to show you something. I begin to protest, to tell him that I have to use the restroom, but he insists. He pushes on the cheap wood paneling on the wall, and a large square of it swings open. He gestures inside, says he's been working on it for a few years, that it's just big enough for a small woman, but made for a child. It's sort of a cot, and there are loops on the ends, for rope or some other restraint, I'm sure. I noped out of the bedroom, down the stairs. I didn't run, I just told him I had to go to the restroom again. While I am walking, shaking, down the stairs, I pull my cell phone out of my purse and mimic dialing on it. I was lucky that he stayed behind to close up the bedroom and that thing in the wall so he didn't see that my phone wasn't even turning on. I pretended to be having a conversation with a friend of mine, and at that point, he showed up, began loudly recounting what had transpired that evening to my friend. I told him how I'd called that nice gent we had met at the Dunkin' Donuts to pick me up, and that I was at the guy's house, but would be leaving shortly. In parentheses, I'd been with my friend Tom at the time we'd met the guy at the Dunkin' Donuts. I then pretended that my friend had offered to come pick me up from the bus stop, and in one respect, I was lucky. The guy knew I was living out of town, but he didn't know I was living four hours away, or that any friend of mine would have to make that hellishly long trip if they were going to come pick me up. I told my friend that I'd head out to the bus station, ASAP, and that I'd see him soon. I still remember the look on the guy's face as I said that. It darkened. You know that look that snotty, spoiled little kids will get when someone actually dares to tell them no? It was like that. 
It was that look, but worse, because there is something almost perverse about seeing it so openly displayed on the face of a 50-something-year-old man. So I started to grab my purse and zip up my coat, all the while gibbering on about how my friend remembered him and had said to tell him hi. It seemed at that time that there were two things that were of the utmost importance at that moment. The first, to make him feel that I hadn't found him or anything he'd said or displayed odd. I didn't want him to think I would be some sort of threat to his plans or his well-being if he let me leave. Secondly, I wanted him to know that he was identifiable and that someone, at least, someone who could identify him, knew I was with him. He took me to the bus station and acted shitty the entire time we were driving there. This is pretty much the end of this story, although I had one more, far worse, encounter with the same guy a couple weeks after this incident. The second encounter convinced me that not only was I lucky to be alive, but that I had spent several hours in the home of a serial killer. And this leads us to part two of My Encounter with a Serial Killer by user ISO underscore Quinn. After my initial encounter with the Dundalk creep, I contacted a friend of mine who was a Baltimore City police officer and gave him a description of the creep's house, car, his license number, first name, cell number, and a detailed account of what transpired that morning in his home. A year or so later, I would receive a call from the very same officer, asking if I still had a record of the info I'd given him. Unfortunately, I no longer did. And the owner of the Dunkin' Donuts on Eastern Avenue the Dunkin' Donuts the Creep used to frequent, had no information about the Creep. The last he'd seen him, the Creep had come by to show him a car he'd purchased. It was black and a sedan, but that was all the owner knew. I was on high alert for a week or so. I'd received a couple of sketchy calls from a blocked number, but nothing I could pin on the Creep. Life went back to normal, my normal, at least. And after a couple of weeks, I was able to convince myself that I had exaggerated the entire encounter. After all, I was still breathing. So one day, Tom and I decided to take a trip to the city to pick up my stash for the next few days. Usually, when we went to Baltimore, we'd pick up about five, six hundred dollars worth of scramble, seventy pills. This would last the two of us about two days, sometimes three. I had a hell of a habit. Well, on this particular day, we decided to pick up a bit more than usual. Why, I can't remember. But the entire trip was cursed from the get. We were late leaving the shore. There was an accident in the harbor tunnel that ended up backing up traffic for a good three hours. And by the time we made it to East Baltimore, my contact had dipped. I ended up getting in touch with another guy who sold out of Dundalk. So we went down to Eastern Avenue the same Eastern Avenue the Creeps Dunkin' Donuts is on, and I had Tom Park in the Goodwill parking lot so that I could go find my guy. Most of my contacts knew Tom, but this guy I was going to meet was one of those paranoid hitters, and wouldn't serve me if he even saw Tom's truck in the vicinity of where we were meeting. So I had to hoof it. I can't remember exactly where it was he wanted me to meet him, but I'm fairly certain it was on Dundalk Avenue or Merritt Boulevard one of the large roads that runs through Dundalk like a vein. Whenever I'm in the city and I have to walk anywhere, I employ the look down, look at your feet, never look a stranger in the eye. If a car honks their horn at you, do not respond. 
method of minding my own business. A large part of the reason I do this, the unspoken reason, is because a lot of people will assume that you're a hooker if they see you walking. Generally, if you don't respond when they honk their horns and holler at you, after a bit they'll leave you alone. And don't forget the police and the undercovers. It's their job to harass you a bit and to see if you respond, to see if you're doing business, or merely an unlucky member of the vehicle-less tier of society. On this particular day, I remember being more than a little spooked at the absence of traffic. It wasn't a nice day. It was overcast, gray, a standard January afternoon in Baltimore. But it wasn't abnormally shitty either. There was certainly no reason for it to be so quiet. I was walking down one of Dundalk's larger roads. The traffic should have been steady. There should have been a few people shopping and walking about. At least. But nope. It was just me and the occasional ragtag car. I was about a mile down the road from my meeting point with my dealer when a black sedan pulled up next to me. It was the creep. He opened the passenger side door from the inside and told me to get in. Now, I seriously considered altering the story at this point to make myself look like and feel like less of a dummy, but so far I've been entirely honest in my retelling of my encounters with this guy so I'm not going to start lying now. Anyway, please cut me some slack. Over the three or four weeks that had passed since the incident at the creep's house, I'd spent a fair amount of time talking myself into believing that I had over-dramatized the whole encounter. That maybe that little room in the wall with the cot hadn't been what I thought it was. In short, I had tried to convince myself that I was just a heroin-addled junkie who had blurred the line between reality and fantasy. So when the creep pulled up, and told me to get in his car, there were a lot of reasons why I did just that, instead of doing what a sane person would, and start screaming, running, and pitching a fit, and just generally noping the hell out of there. I've tried to figure out why I did what I did that day, and all I can say is that, between having convinced myself that there was no way I'd actually experienced what I thought I had, and my dislike at the feeling that I'd been a giant coward, I felt sort of compelled to face the guy and verify that no, there was nothing strange going on, and that it really had all been in my head. At the same time, there was another dynamic at play. The fact that I was still sickingly afraid of the creep. I remember pulling back from the open door of the car and looking around, looking at the whole lot of no one and nothing on that street, and thinking that if I didn't go willingly, he could easily run me down on his own. I told him I was busy, that I was on my way to meet my guy, and he said that was fine. He'd take me the rest of the way and drop me off, that he'd even take me back to wherever I was going afterwards, if I wanted him to. So I got in the car. I was terrified. And I fell back into the same routine I'd utilized the first time around, acting disoriented, high, harmless, and glad to see him. I asked him what he'd been up to. He said, in a perfect monotone, that he'd tried to call me. Why hadn't I answered? I explained that I used throwaway cell phones, and that I'd acquire a new one once my minutes had run out on the other phone. Now, remember I said that I'd only been about a mile or less from my meeting point with my dealer when the creep pulled up. My hopes were pinned on him keeping his word and actually taking me where I needed to go. If that happened, I thought, then everything was okay. I didn't need to worry. But of course it didn't. 
When he blew through the light we needed to turn at, I told him he'd miss my stop. Oh, he replied, don't worry. I'll take you where you need to go. I just wanted to talk to you for a minute first. I just felt sick to my stomach. He pulled off of Dundalk Avenue, and I could see that he was turning into one of those little parks they have dotted throughout the city. Parks with jogging paths and a few token toys and swings for children. If I recall correctly, there was some sort of school or other government building in the background. I remember thinking that as soon as he slowed down just a bit, I was going to jump out of that car. I also remember thinking that I needed to relax, that if he even thought for a moment that I was beginning to freak out, my chances of him slowing down or giving me any sort of out would be nil. You see, the whole time I was sitting there looking at the door lock, the area we were in, etc., he was going on about how he'd been looking up sedatives and wanted to get some Xanax and some other benzodiazepines, how he'd really like my help, and how he'd been scouting out the park we were in at the moment, as well as other parks throughout the city and county, and how he was certain that with someone like me by his side, to help lure little girls back to his house, he could fulfill his dream. He said, and here's what terrified me the most, that he could use the dock behind his house to get rid of the bodies. I'd never disliked myself more than I did that day. The whole time he was talking about all of this, I'd been doing two things. One, I had begun to slouch down in the passenger seat, with my eyes almost shut, trying to act as if I had nodded out. I could only see him a little out of the slit corner of my eye. The whole time he was talking about all of this, he had been rooting around under the front of his seat, slowly, sneakily, as if he was not trying to make any noise, you know? So when I would respond to him now, I would make a warning gesture like move my hand, to indicate I was about to open my eyes. The last thing I wanted to do was to make him feel like he'd been caught, and that he had to pull whatever it was out immediately. The second thing I'd been doing was how I was responding to his questions. Instead of acting freaked out or upset, I was trying to act like I was on board with all of this, but not too on board. I was trying to act like I was considering it like I had the option to do this if I wanted to, or not. I didn't want him to think of me as a victim, and I didn't want him to think that I was thinking of myself as a victim. I was hoping that if I acted like his peer, like a potential partner in crime, that he would treat me like one, or at least pretend to long enough for me to get out of the car safely. He was still circling the little park when he began to slow down significantly. Through the slim opening of my eye, through my eyelashes, I could see him reach as far down as he could under that front seat, all the while watching me intently to see if I'd move. I knew it was time to get the hell out of Dodge, because whatever he had, whatever it was he was looking for down there, he did not want me to know about it. That terrified me, and God was I lucky. I was lucky because at the same time that he was slowing down, another car had come out of nowhere and was slowing down next to his vehicle. He sat up. I bolted, just grabbed the door handle, fell out of that door, and ran, without ever looking back once. I pulled my cell phone out of my purse and called my friend, and had him pick me up from one of the stores on the corner of the avenue. I was bawling, terrified at my own stupidity, at how close I knew I had come to ending up in some psycho's dungeon, 
This was how he referred to his hole in the wall during his rant that day. All because I didn't want to listen to my instincts. Or hell, just pure common sense. I cried and cried and cried, thinking about that creep, and the things he'd said he wanted to do to little girls. This is, for all intents and purposes, the end of my encounters with the Dundalk creep. About two or three months after this all happened, I received a phone call one day, one I didn't answer, because the number was unfamiliar. Later that same week, I checked my voicemail, and it was the creep. He'd changed his number and wanted to let me know. Also, he had finished renovating the house, and he wanted me to come see it. He said he'd put an ad in some paper, and was letting out various rooms as boarding house rooms to women only, and that he had some interesting ideas he wanted to talk over with me. I forwarded the new number to my police officer friend, and changed my own. So, this post was made eight years ago, and there has not been any updates. Alright, this is the final story, and it's from r slash let's not meet by user Zazzy Goose. It's titled, He Could Have Killed Me. We all make dumb decisions in life, but in this case, I was stupid. Very stupid. I arranged to meet a guy off Tinder, but because of my heightened anxiety about driving, I arranged for him to pick me up outside my place. I had been talking to him for a few weeks at least, but that is not redeemable and I know that. The choice I made on this day could have ended me, but thankfully I'm still around to tell the tale. The guy picked me up in his car and told me he planned to take us out for sushi. I love sushi, so I thought, great. He put in the name of the restaurant into his GPS and we were off making pleasant conversation on the way there, until I started seeing woods when I looked out my window. I felt very confused. We were supposed to be going into town, not into the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. Fear hit me hard then. He said, I swear the GPS is taking me through here. I didn't choose this path. Please just get us back to civilization, I said. My eyes were wide and I must have looked like a deer in headlights. His face was really apprehensive, so he must have known that I was scared completely shitless. OMG, I thought to myself. I should have just conquered my anxiety about driving and met him somewhere public. Or better yet, not met with this guy at all. What the fuck was I thinking? I'm going to get murdered here in these woods. I tried checking my phone to see if I could assist him with the GPS. And that's when he said those spine-chilling words. There's no signal out here. I remember just thinking to myself to try to look calm. Don't let him think you suspect he's onto something. But man, did I feel terrified. The tips of my fingers were cold while I simultaneously was sweating. If he was going to kill me, part of me wanted to get it over with, so I wouldn't be left in anticipation. His forehead was perspiring. He kept saying, I swear I'm not doing this. I'm trying to get us back on the route to the sushi place. I said, I don't care about sushi anymore. Get us to the gas station, anywhere with people at this point. He said, I don't have a shovel or weapon in my trunk or anything, if that's what you're thinking, which did little to calm my nerves. We finally reached the restaurant after what felt like an eternity. I'd never been so scared in my life. I didn't have much of an appetite and I was physically trembling when we arrived. But, I figured, he didn't kill me when he had the chance, so I guess it was safe now to continue with our date. 
I already planned on taking an Uber home because I didn't want to go through that experience again. I was shocked out of my mind when he then asked, So when do you think we'll have sex? I nearly choked on a piece of sashimi. What? I didn't know where this was coming from and I didn't know how he could ask me something like this on a first date when he literally saw me pale as a ghost just moments ago. Quote, You know, like how long will you make me wait for sex? A day? A week? A month? I stared at him, dumbfounded. I couldn't respond because I was utterly speechless in that moment. Well, I can't wait a whole month. I'm telling you now, he said. I didn't say anything and the rest of the date was insanely awkward. I said goodbye as I took my Uber home and only seconds after my driver pulled out of the restaurant parking lot, he texted me to say that he doesn't think it will work out because he needs a girl with a higher libido. I didn't argue. I just texted back a simple, okay, ready to be done with this man. When the Uber driver drove me home, he did not take me through the wilderness pathway of a potential murder site. He took me home, through streets, other cars, lights, the sweetest scene to my immense relief. I couldn't help but wonder why my date had to take me through an hour drive through the wilderness to get to the restaurant. But it only took my Uber driver 15 minutes to get me home from the same location. The whole thing was chilling. I don't know if my date planned on anything sinister or if it was an honest mistake, but I am glad I made it out alive. I learned a tough lesson that night, one that I should have already known, but that I foolishly ignored for some reason. Don't let strangers from a dating app pick you up in their cars. To the guy who took me through the woods, let's not meet again. That is all for this week's episode, and thank you so much for listening. If you don't already, make sure to follow me on all my socials. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube all under True Crime Cam. If you have any case suggestions, go to the Google form in my description below and submit a case. So for next week's episode, um, possibly the week after that, it's going to be a very special one because I'm interviewing, well, I have already interviewed the loved one of the victim in the case, um, and it's about a 15-year-old girl who intentionally struck a man while he was jogging and killed him and she'll be only potentially facing five or six years in a juvenile rehabilitation center. So that's just a little short summary of the case and what happened and I'll let you guys know officially on Instagram when that will be going up. Again, thank you so much for listening and don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode. Bye.